We are continuing in our series of messages from 2 Corinthians. I've titled the series, This Treasure in Jars of Clay. I wanted to start out today asking if you've ever had to make room for someone in your life. I have. Over the past few years, I've had moments where two different nieces have said, hey, can I live with you for a bit? And we've opened a room for them. Uh, there was a point where my daughter, who had flown the coop, said, I'd like to work on a master's and I can't afford rent and school. Can I move in again? And we opened a room for Beth for a bit. Uh, my sister said, we need to come back to the States. Uh, this was right as COVID was closing down. It was wrapping up, I guess. and. Uh, she and her husband came, and we opened up a room for them in our home for some time. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've had multiple times in my life where I've had to make room for someone very literally and physically. Uh, that's really what we're going to be talking about today is making room for each other, and, and, and I mean much more than a bedroom in your home. Uh, I've titled today's message, Making Room for each other. And we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 2 through 16. Before we dive into this, let me try to reconstruct uh, a possible scenario of what's going on in the background of this letter. This uh, likely is uh, possibly even the fourth letter that Paul has written to the congregation in Corinth. We know when he wrote 1 Corinthians, he says to them, in my previous letter, so the letter we call 1 Corinthians is probably at least the second letter. And then when he writes what we call 2 Corinthians, we only have two letters of Paul to Corinth, uh, he mentions a painful letter that he sent to them. And apparently that, that's another letter that happened between the writing of 1 Corinthians and the writing of 2 Corinthians. And here's the situation. Paul, on his second missionary tour, ends up in Corinth, spends 18 months there, and, is, and through God's work, uh, leaves behind there an established congregation of followers of Jesus. And uh, he, he moves on from there, returns back to Antioch, which was his starting place and uh, then he goes on a third missionary journey and on that third missionary journey he ends up in the city of Ephesus which is what we, in what we would call Turkey today or, or back then would have been called Asia Minor. Ephesus was an enormous uh, very important city it kind of dominated the whole region of Asia Minor. Uh, so Paul has been there for two and a half years of the most powerful and successful but also the most difficult years of ministry he's had. And he, he writes this letter as he begins to make his way back to Corinth. He goes up north to Macedonia and he's going to make his way down south to Corinth in Greece. And uh, he, as he's doing this, he's picking up the offering for the saints and his intent then is from Corinth to sail back to Caesarea Maritima and make his way to Jerusalem to deliver the offering to help the believers in Jerusalem. That's, that's his plan. So as he's making his way uh, to Macedonia is when he's in Macedonia. He writes this letter that we're reading now and sends it ahead of him to Corinth. But uh, 
The big thing in his relationship with Corinth is that apparently while he was in Ephesus, there was some crisis and he must have sailed across, visited Corinth briefly, and in that a moment there was some, expo- some exposure of some issue within the congregation in Corinth. Something was not right and apparently somebody was particularly offensive to Paul uh, in that uh, situation and then Paul has to return to Ephesus where he's continuing his ministry and after he returns he writes this letter that he describes in 2 Corinthians as a, a letter soaked in tears. He, he wrote it uh, a wash in tears and it was a very painful letter for him to write and he writes this letter to try to confront that situation that uh, has not been resolved there's some kind of wrong behavior going on and part partly uh, possibly against Paul and he writes this difficult painful letter to try to address that problem and he sends Titus to deliver it meanwhile There's this mob riot. He barely escapes with his life from Ephesus. And Paul leaves Ephesus. He's made his way up to Macedonia. And the whole time he's thinking, how did the church in Corinth receive that painful letter? Did did they receive my correction? Or uh, have they responded in anger and said, uh, Paul, who are you to tell us what to do? You don't even live here anymore. We're going to do our own thing and we're done with you, Paul. That's just one possible way things could have played out. And Paul doesn't know. This was obviously long before things like internet. You sent letters by people traveling places and it took forever to hear back. He doesn't know what's happened as he sits down to write this letter. Um, So uh, that, I think, is the background for many of the things he's referencing in the passage we're looking at today. But let me pick up uh, kind of where we are. Uh, He's kind of retaking a thought that he left pending in chapter 6. In chapter 6, he says, we've opened up our hearts to you. He says, return to us the same Respond to us in kind, basically. Open up your hearts to us as well. And then we saw the passage last week where he has this word of correction to not be unequally yoked with uh, those who are outside of the faith, to not tie our hearts and lives up in ways uh, where you know they're moving in one direction and we're moving in the opposite direction. He's finished that correction and now he's returning to that idea of uh, let's, let's, uh, love one another. Let's, let's uh, open our hearts to each other. So we pick up here in verse 2 of chapter 7. Make room for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I don't speak to bring condemnation for I have already said that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my boldness toward you. Great is my boasting about you. I have been filled with encouragement. I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. I love that opening phrase, make room for us. He's saying, open up space in your, in your time, in your uh, hearts, in your emotional space, open up room for us so that we may enter in. 
and, and he reminds them, we've, we've not hurt anybody. We've not done anybody wrong. We have corrupted no one. We have not been the kind of moral influence on somebody that has led them into types of uh, behaviors and patterns of living that are self-destructive. We have corrupted or ruined no one. We have exploited no one. We haven't used anybody in Corinth just for our own personal advantage. In fact, we have poured ourselves out for you. Sadly, uh, there are too many leaders in Christian churches who could not say what Paul has just said here. There are leaders who sadly exploit those they lead for personal gain, who corrupt those they lead, who wrong those they lead. But Paul says, we've, we've not done any of that. Open, make room for us. And, and maybe that's not the complaint that Paul has somehow done something uh, wrong in his uh, c- communications with him. Maybe the complaint is, here you are always correcting us. Maybe Paul has not graduated from his past life as the finger-wagging Pharisee, always pointing out the faults and sins of everybody. And this harsh letter he's just sent, maybe that's... Uh, all Paul is doing. He's just heaping condemnation on everybody. And some people even today read Paul and try to say that that's his message, that it's just telling us all this stuff that's wrong about our lives. And Paul says, no, that's not at all what I'm doing. I've already said, you are in our hearts. This connection Paul has with the believers in Corinth, it's not superficial. These guys are in his bones. You're in our hearts, he says, and there's no way I'm just trying to destroy you. He says, we're we're part of each other. We die together. We live together. We share eternity in life and death. We are bound. And this is marriage language. To share life and death and, and to be a part of each other. Through the whole process, Paul says, this is what connects us. And he says, I've, I, have, uh, I have great boldness when it comes to you. I have great confidence in my approach to you because of this very real love connection we have heart to heart. And because of this, I also boast greatly about you. I talk, I'm so filled with pleasure and pride at what God has done among you. And I'm not quiet about it. I tell everybody about it. I have been filled with encouragement. And in this letter, Paul has made it clear that he is just coming out of the most difficult period he's experienced. He talks about, we were so overwhelmed, utterly beyond our strength, that we despaired of life itself. And and Paul is coming out of that as he's returning, making his way back to Corinth. And he says, we have been filled with encouragement. I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. Paul never preached a gospel free of suffering. Here's what Paul had to say about suffering and affliction. Yes, it comes, but the joy that Jesus provides in our lives and hearts outpaces any of the affliction. So that the affliction may seem uh, a lot, but this joy that Christ has brought, is, is, it just won't fit. It's bubbling over. It's overflowing in our hearts and lives. I wonder if this isn't one of the greatest problems for the church. 
that we don't make room for each other. That we're too busy living for ourselves and constructing our personal family, uh, our, our spouse, our children, and this American dream of a life with the house and the picket fence and the, the really nice car. And we're, 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 we're constantly grooming and attending to this self-centered life we're building to the point that we're so busy with all this other stuff that we don't have room in our life for anybody else. There's no time in my schedule for other people. And there's no real estate space in my heart for other people. I'm, I'm too busy loving myself to love anybody else. Paul says, make room. Because this does not happen on its own. These kinds of connections he's describing here where you are in our hearts, we are living and dying together, that doesn't happen by itself. We have to be intentional. We have to actually carve out space in our life, time to sit together and not just time. You can sit together and do nothing. No, you have to actually open your heart up and say, I'm going to expose what's in me to those around me. I'm not going to keep hiding it all. I'm going to open my heart up and expose myself to the hurt that can come with that exposure. And I am hoping that on the other side, the other person will do the same. And the result will be that we find room for each other in our hearts and lives. Isn't that what the gospel is all about? Isn't that what sin took from the human race? It, it, it destroyed the harmony that was meant to be there. The shared experience of living together as children of God, sharing oversight of, of the cosmos together, and all of a sudden we, we closed in on ourselves. And we locked each other out. And we focused inward. And we became incapable of the kind of community God created us to be. The gospel is about God fixing that. It's about God restoring our communion with him. And in that restoration, beginning the restoration of our communion with each other. So that we make room for each other. And it won't happen if we don't make it happen. I want to ask you a question. How are you opening up your life to the others God is inviting in? Are you being intentional about it? Are you expecting it to just happen on its own? Let's keep reading verse 5. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were being afflicted in every way, from without quarrels, from within fears. But God, who encourages the downcast, encouraged us by the arrival of Titus, and not only by his arrival, but also by the encouragement with which he was encouraged by you. As he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me which caused me to rejoice even more. 
Paul's describing, okay, we've left Ephesus, we've made our way up north into Macedonia, and as we were coming into Macedonia, we still, he says, our flesh had no rest, and Paul's uh, use of the term flesh is, I think, unique to him. He doesn't mean our physical bodies had no rest. For Paul, flesh is a way of describing the human experience if we, if we keep God out of it. What, what do we bring to the table on our own? And here's the, and Paul uses that as a shorthand. This is what we were experiencing in and of ourselves if I don't take into account what God is doing. In, in ourselves, we had no rest. We were afflicted every way possible. Outside, quarrels and fighting. We've just barely escaped this uh, horrible incidence of mob violence in Ephesus that very easily could have ended with our, our heads on a spike. And we just made it out of there. And that not just external, internal, within ourselves, we are plagued with fears. As Paul is approaching Corinth, Hoping to wrap up his collection for the saints in Corinth, he doesn't even know if there's still a, an open uh, church there for him to come into. He doesn't know how that letter he sent has been received. He doesn't know how willing the church is going to be to open their doors to him. Maybe they're very offended by that difficult letter he had to write and they have said they have sworn off their relationship with Paul and Paul is plagued with fears. What's going to happen? Things don't always turn out the way we would like them to. And in himself, Paul is plagued with fears. And now he brings God into the picture. But God, who encourages the downcast. I love in Paul's letters, he makes such a clear distinction between what he is in and of himself and what becomes of him when Jesus takes hold of things. When God steps in, everything changes. God, by his nature, is the one who encourages the downcast. Those who have lost hope or strength or, or are discouraged or have petered out, who feel like they have no more to give, he is the one who encourages and lifts up the downcast. I'm sure you've experienced that. Moments where you felt like you were done, you just could not take another step, and God has sustained you through it. And Paul says, this is how God encouraged us. We met up with Titus. They were up there in Macedonia making their way back to Corinth. And up, all of a sudden, Titus shows up. And they're gathered with Titus. Now, Titus is the guy Paul had sent with that difficult letter. <clears throat> Titus came back, and all Paul's fears were dissolved. The church received the letter well. And that was such a weight off of Paul's soul because he had invested so much of his heart and soul in these people. And he was encouraged by the arrival of Titus. He says, not just his arrival. In other words, it wasn't just, I miss Titus. He's been a great companion as we work together in this ministry. I, I love being reunited with him. That is great. That is encouraging, but it's more than that. It was the encouragement that he received from you. In other words, he went there with fear and trembling to deliver this difficult letter, and instead of beating him down, you guys strengthened him. And he came back to us refreshed and stronger than we left him. He was encouraged by you. 
And he gave this report that must have been like cool water on a hot day. He reported about your longing, and I think Paul means your longing for us, your, your responded love to our love extended, your mourning concerning this offense that I had to write this difficult letter about, how you uh, immediately lamented that this was going on and that it had happened among you, and your zeal for me, Paul says, me in particular, that you guys stood up for me. Paul says it it made me rejoice even more than all the rest of the guys. It it was, Paul kind of speaks up out of the we and talks about me. I rejoiced. So often in our lives as we're following Christ, the intended encouragement God wants to bring into our lives is going to happen through the people we have opened up room for. You might wonder sometimes when if you're struggling with something in your life and you feel like there's no encouragement, maybe you haven't left any room in your heart and in your schedule and in your life for God to build in the kinds of relationships he can use to bring the encouragement you need on those moments. Paul had those open, that openness that opened him up to receive. Yes, the Corinthians could have hurt him deeply. They could have wounded him deeply. He exposed himself to that. But by opening himself up to it, that became the avenue through which God encouraged him in one of the moments where he felt weakest. They became the embodied encouragement of God. Let me ask you to think. How has God encouraged you through the love of others in his church? Let's keep reading verse 8. Because even if I grieved you with the letter, I do not regret it, even though I did regret it, for I see that the letter, if only, even if only for an hour, grieved you. Now I rejoice. Not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repentance. For you were grieved as God intended, so that you would suffer no loss from us. For the grief God intends works repentance into salvation with no regret, but the world's grief accomplishes death. For look what this very thing, this being grieved as God intends, has accomplished in you. What diligence, what defense of yourself, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. In everything, you have proven yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So then, even though I wrote to you, it was not on account of the one doing harm or on account of the one who had been harmed, but so that your own diligence for us might be revealed to you before God. Therefore, we have been encouraged. Paul talks in these verses about grief. We live in a therapeutic society that views grief as an evil to be avoided. It's necessary to go through stages of it, but only so that you can leave it behind. We, we don't want to suffer. We don't want to be grieved. We don't want uh, sorrow. 
will do just about anything to avoid it. In fact, some people honestly believe that the goal of human existence is to be happy. We've written it into our, our nation's uh, motto, right? The pursuit of happiness. That's what the American life is about, supposedly. There's an awful lot of talk in the Bible about suffering. And maybe happiness isn't the goal of our existence. Maybe there's something more powerful and noble and better than just mere happiness. And Paul talks about, yes, I wrote this letter to you and I knew it was going to hurt. I knew it was going to wound you. Because I was dealing with something among you that is wrong and that needs to be addressed. And it's painful to recognize I, have, I am in the wrong and I need to change something about what I'm doing. It's, it's difficult to do that. And it's difficult to confront others with that. But Paul says, I sent it to you. I don't regret it. He says, well, okay, let me be honest. I, I, I regretted it uh, when I realized that it hurt you. I regretted that. I regretted causing you pain. But he says, no, honestly, I rejoice. I'm so glad I sent that letter. Because, yes, you were grieved. Yes, it caused you sorrow. But you let God use the grief the way he wants to use it. You were grieved, not just for grief's sake, but you were grieved into repentance. In other words, this sorrow about this wrong among you led you directly into repentance. Now, what is repentance? Repentance is recognizing that there is something about my actions or my attitudes, something about me that is not right, that is wrong. And repentance isn't just saying, oh, that's so bad, I'm such a bad person, oh, I'm so awful. That's not repentance. Repentance is saying, this is wrong, and I don't want this. I don't want to to behave this way. I don't want to continue to think internally this way. I am going to turn my back on that, and I'm moving in the opposite direction. That is repentance. It's, It's turning your back on it. That's what this grief was meant to accomplish. It was meant to bring you into repentance. And he says, this is the way God intends it, so that in this you suffered no loss from us. Yes, we caused you pain with this letter, but in the end, you lost nothing. This did not destroy our relationship. It did not lay waste to the church. Uh, This grief uh, resulted, because you surrendered to what God was trying to do through it, it resulted in no loss, only gain. And Paul explains what's different about grief the way God intends it. Actually, literally in the Greek, it's grief according to God. The kind of grief God intends, it works repentance into salvation. Sometimes we misunderstand what the Christian faith has to say about salvation. And some people think of it as something that only happens when you die. 
In other words, Jesus died on the cross, and in dying on the cross, he willingly took on the sins of the world so that all of our offenses and shortcomings are forgiven, and in the final tally, the final judgment, where we render an accounting to our Creator for the life we have lived, we are, are not condemned because of our sin. And we think of salvation as something that really only kicks in when we die and we face final judgment. That's not the way the Bible describes salvation. It is described as a daily process. You see, sin has taken over so much of our hearts and lives and has robbed us of so much. And salvation is the process by which God is taking ground from sin and restoring it to life. So every time we're confronted with something in our lives or hearts that is wrong and we respond to that with sorrow, we don't celebrate it, we don't revel in it, we don't pridefully parade about it, but we regret it and we, 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 we say that is not right and we respond by allowing that to bring us into repentance, a change away from it, a repudiation of that thing. Then God replaces that bad with something good. We suffer no loss in the exchange. We lose the part of our living that was robbing us of intimacy with others, of love, of the experience of life that God intended for us. It, it, we lose that. And in its place, we, are, we gain the virtuous thing God was trying to do in our hearts and lives. We gain ground for life and take it from death. So salvation is something we need to surrender to daily as God continues to confront things that need to change in our hearts and lives and we surrender to that. We lament it, but we don't just say, boy, what a horrible person I am. Oh, that's so sad. We allow that repent, that sorrow to lead us into repentance and say, not only am I sad about it, I'm done with it. I'm not going to think that way anymore. I'm not going to live my life that way anymore. That's when God accomplishes in us salvation. We are saved from one more thing that was robbing us of life. Now, the world has grief. The world has its own version of grief. And you know the world, Steve, you know what it accomplishes? Death. The world's grief. And think about it. When you're experiencing grief over something, and especially if we're talking about the kind of grief we're talking about here where you're confronted with something about you that's wrong, if all you're sensing in that grief is hopelessness, despair, death, that's not God's work. If what you're experiencing is a sense of, of rejection of that, and moving in a new direction, and you see how God is opening up to you something completely different, then that's the kind of sorrow God's at work doing. That's God's grief. And Paul uses the Corinthian congregation as an example of what he's talking about. Look at what this, this very thing we're talking about, this idea of being grieved according to God, as God intends. Look at what it did in you. 
What diligence? And again, we don't know the nature of the, pro- the problem Paul addressed in that letter, but apparently their response was not, oh, we should maybe get around to this sometimes. No, they, they immediately said, we have got to address this. And they were diligent in addressing it. What defense of yourself? They didn't say, oh, uh, who cares? Let's just ignore this. Let's sweep it under the rug. No, they wanted to exonerate themselves as a congregation of followers of Jesus that we will not continue to uh, turn a blind eye to this, but we will deal with it. What indignation, what fear, this sense of profound reverence for God. In other words, they were not motivated uh, by trying to impress anybody. They were motivated out of reverence for God. What longing, and I think Paul is talking about their, their longing, their love for him and those with him. What zeal, he's talked about this before. What punishment. Apparently the church uh, exercised some form of discipline against the offending party in this matter. He says, in everything, you've proven yourselves to be innocent in the matter. You, you did everything exactly as you should have done. And those are, uh, those are marks of genuine repentance, right? They didn't just feel bad about it. They did something about it. They turned their back on it. It's to the point that Paul says, you know, perhaps the greatest benefit in this isn't really even about the guy who did something wrong that had to be corrected. It's not so much even about the person who was the victim of what he did wrong, perhaps Paul himself. It's not really as much about that as God bringing us one step further in this relationship we're sharing. God revealing to you your own diligence for us. God used this to prove to you your love for us and to confirm to you our own love to you. And Paul now, his relationship with the believers in Corinth is better than it was before. It's deeper. There's a deeper connection there because they have surrendered to what God was trying to do through all of this. Therefore, we have been encouraged. How have you experienced the grief that leads to repentance to accomplish God's salvation? Let's finish second half of verse 13 through 16. And in addition to our own encouragement, we rejoiced even more because of Titus' own joy because he has been refreshed in his spirit by all of you. Because if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I was not put to shame. Rather, just as we spoke truth to you in all things, so also our boasting to Titus proved true. And his affections for you are even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all. How you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice that in everything I can depend on you. Paul says, you know, I'm not just overjoyed because of the love you guys have demonstrated for me. Receiving this hard letter that I sent you. Thank you. I just needed that. You don't know how how overwhelmed I've felt lately and how weak and, and just at the right moment the encouragement I received from that. You have no idea. 
But it's more. It's even better than that because we're so happy to see how God used you to encourage Titus. We love him too. And it's so great to see what God did in Titus. I can try to picture for poor Titus. Paul's there up to his neck in ministry in Ephesus and he writes this tear-soaked letter and sends Titus off to deliver it. And Titus is not a founding member of the church in Corinth. He wasn't with uh, Timothy and, and Silas and all those. He, he's a latecomer to this and here he's sent with this tough letter to try to supplement it and, and help the church deal with the issue Paul's writing about. I'm sure he went there with fear and trembling. Boy, how, how are these guys going to receive this? This isn't one of those, you guys are doing great. Uh, it's not that kind of letter. And, and how are they going to receive this? And are they, you know, they going to kill the messenger? And yet, instead of that, uh, Titus is the one who, who ended up being encouraged and strengthened by the encounter. So Paul says, not just our own encouragement. We were so happy. We rejoiced so much because of Titus's joy. He came back to us not grief-stricken, but joyful, refreshed in his spirit by all of you. He came back like he'd been on vacation, strengthened. And Paul says, yeah, I talked you guys up to him. I, I boasted about you. It's interesting. Paul's going to use the word boasting a lot in this letter. And you'll pay attention to the things Paul's boasting about. Because I think the false teachers he's correcting are boasting about very different things than Paul is boasting about. Paul's not boasting about himself, not boasting about what he's accomplished. He's boasting about what God has done in Corinth. And he says, I have boasted about you and I am so glad that when Titus got there, everything I said about you proved to be true and even better. I talked about what God's done among you. I'm so proud of you. Um... And, and we were not put to shame. You guys did not fail to live up to what we had said about you. Isn't that a great thing? When you talk up a, a congregation and somebody interacts with them and, and you find that, that they delivered on what you said about them, that they're not an embarrassment to you for talking well about them. They didn't bring shame to Paul. In fact... He says, just the way when we were among you, we only spoke the truth. We, said the tr we spoke the truth in all things. When Titus went, it turns out that our boasting to him about you turned out to be true as well. Thank you for not making us out to be liars. He says, now God's building in Titus the kind of connection with you that we've had. He says, his affections for you are even greater that word, affections, splognon, it's hard to say, hard to spell. It's guts. That's the, when you talk about intense emotion, visceral, he says that's the, that's the kind of connection Timothy is now developing with you guys. It's, it's in his bones now. And his affections are even greater as he remembers how you all obeyed what God was calling you to. And how you received him 
with fear and trembling. I'm sure he was the one who showed up with fear and trembling. And yet they received him with that attitude of openness to receive correction. I'm sure when Titus went there, he was expecting. He was coming out of this very difficult time of ministry in Ephesus. He's going to, it's like there's no rest for the weary, right? I mean, out of the frying pan and into the fire. I mean, he's delivering this hard letter, and he, I'm sure he was bracing himself for more warfare, more fighting and trying to uh, argue for the, the truth of what Paul was trying to say in that letter and, and uh, defending the truth of it. And to his astonishment, he didn't have to do any of that. God had paved the way ahead. And instead of stepping into yet another battlefield, uh, he came and experienced a moment of refreshment being strengthened and encouraged himself. He was going to bring correction and it turns out that he's the guy who received the, the benefit of that exchange. He came back to Paul refreshed, renewed. Sometimes God surprises us and brings encouragement to us in moments of difficult obedience when we least expect it. When has obeying God in something difficult led to being refreshed rather than drained for you? God wants us to make room for each other. The longer I live, the more I study God's word, the more convinced I become that it's all about relationships and we will never know what God's trying to do in our lives if we don't make room for each other because that's what he's trying to fix that's what he's trying to restore and you hear me here week after week talking about our house to house groups that are about to start up where we meet in homes and get to know each other in a more intimate setting and a, a, a less uh, structured setting than we're doing here on Sunday mornings where we can actually find out what's going on in each other's lives, pray for each other, serve each other, talk about the Bible together and ask questions of each other. Uh, that has, we have to make space for that because it doesn't just happen. And, and I'm telling you, we're about to start up these groups starting next Sunday. That week is the week we're kicking them all off again. If you have not committed yourself to at least one of these groups, I challenge you. Do it today. Don't leave here and say, I'll get around to it. Make room. If you have to cancel something in your schedule, cancel it. Carve out space and, and not just in your schedule. Go into this house to house with an, an attitude of opening your heart. Make room for each other. Stop hiding who you really are. Stop hiding the struggles you're dealing with, the pain in your life, trying to put up this front of, of a life that has it all together. Just be open with each other. Be honest. Make room for each other. If we do this, and we do it even 
accepting the pain that comes with allowing us to speak words of correction to each other. That when something's not right and we're studying God's word together and we're surrendering to his saving work in our lives, we challenge one another to deal with things that are not right in our hearts and lives. And we, re- we, we have to be open to receiving that and to receiving that the way God intends with a kind of sorrow that goes into repentance that opens us up to being saved from that thing. A willingness to surrender to God together. We have to make that room or it doesn't happen. We want God's salvation to be happening every day. Every single thing he wants to save us from that sin is robbing us of. We want to surrender that to him. And he wants us to do this together so that he can use each of us as a source of strength and encouragement to each other. So that this salvation is being played out in the context of open hearts and lives. Open to each other. Will you make room in your heart for me? Will you make room for each other? Will you open your schedule and your heart and your time for this? Will we be God's encouragement to those among us who are overwhelmed? We're going to sing a song. This is a time of responding to what God is calling us to. If you don't know Jesus the way I've been describing, he's not the the Lord of your life. You have not surrendered yourself to this process of salvation we're, calling, we're talking about. I want to invite you today to take that first step, to just say, Jesus, I want to surrender my heart to you, and I want you to do in my life the work you want to do. This is your moment. We're going to have people here at the front in a moment. If that's you, come, take their hand and tell them that that's what you want to do, and they'll help you. They'll help you pray and ask Jesus to take your life. Maybe you already know Jesus and today's been a reminder there's something in your life that you've been neglecting. Maybe you have not made the room for others that God is asking you to make and you want to repent today and say, God, I'm so sorry that I have uh, allowed this to happen. I repent and I want to move into uh, that salvation that you intend here. If that's you this morning, come. You can take the hand of the people that are here up front. We're also opening the altar. If you would rather, rather than talk to somebody and have them pray with you, if you would rather just come yourself and kneel and pray to God right here at the altar. The altar is open for whatever it is that you need to do uh, with God this morning. Let's all stand. Please come while we sing.